You're listening to Live from the News Dungeon, a nondoc.com podcast. Hello and welcome to Live from the News Dungeon, a nondoc.com podcast. I'm Trace Savage, editor-in-chief of nondoc.com. It's a little after 3 p.m. on Thursday, March 4th. We are not live, but we are in our news dungeon again after an episode where we tried to record in our closets. Yeah, we are a live. We are a live. Yeah. That, that is the goal. Angela, how are you doing today? What up? I'm excellent. I'm excellent. That's good. Thank you for asking. Andrea? It sounds like I'm not quite as well as Angela is, but <laughs> I'm so amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Okay, good. You guys are the happy side. I'm here. We have a guest with us here in the news dungeon. It's actually his news dungeon. Uh, Governor <laughs> David Walters, who is our landlord and has uh, worn a pocket square for us today. Mm, yeah, you're the dungeon that. master. Yeah. yeah. Um, how are you, sir? I'm <clears throat> I'm great. I've been frog in the throat, but uh, <laughs> glad to be down here in the dungeon. I'm I need to fix this place up. Uh, well, we, we did move something in front of the dartboard so that you might not see when Angela's son hey, hey. maybe threw a little low. Uh, hey, 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 hey. Um, well, thank you for being here. We wanted to have you on for a little while. Uh, you have a, a fascinating um, uh, political story and then a life after politics as well. And I was wondering if you could kind of tell us uh, about yourself. You said you're from Canute, Oklahoma. Uh, quick pop quiz to my teammates. What county is that in? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Marmalade County. Uh, okay. No. Uh, I'm not sure. Governor? <laughs> Washington. Washington. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Right. Western I Oklahoma. I should have yeah. trusted myself. Western Oklahoma. Yeah. Uh, and how did you uh, become governor? Just you woke up one day and that was a thing? In... You know, it really uh, it really was uh, sort of like that. I had uh, I'd, I'd been involved. Uh, the governor, uh, governor and I had asked me to serve on the uh, DHS commission, the Department of Human Services, and appointed me as chairman of that. And that was when I was early 30s, maybe even late 20s. But I stepped into that role and everybody around the table was 80 or 75 or whatever. And it was uh, it was it, and it was a huge agency. And so I got I got uh, intrigued by state government because it was. The solutions were actually most people, when they get involved in state government, think it's more complicated than it than it actually is, and that was my view. But it turns out the solutions are pretty simple. It's just having the courage and the guts to go lay out the right solutions. So, uh, the governor asked me to uh, governor and I at the time asked me to co-chair then a reform commission, which was made up of a hundred private citizens to put together a reform effort for the state government, which again was very unusual. It turned out later that he was mad at Oklahoma City and he appointed a, you know, a stellar um, leader out of Tulsa and he wanted a chair out of Oklahoma City, but he was mad at the leaders here. <laughs> and so he told his staff to go find a nobody. Mm. And so they came to me and asked me if I would be the co-chair of this big reform commission. And so that was kind of my start. I fit the nobody category. See, Angela, you got to worry. You always talk about how you're nobody, but then the next thing you know, you might want to be governor. I might be somebody. There's yes. a demand for nobodies. So out of out of that uh, came that all kinds boss. of uh, all <laughs> kinds of reforms, and and uh, you know, I I stayed uh, uh, I stayed in touch and paid attention. And so in 1986, uh, I just thought the candidates for governor weren't well suited to come out of that particular economic crisis and. Without any money, any name ID or anything else, I stepped up and ran and uh, shockingly beat poor old Mike Turpin in the process, and who was the sitting attorney general. 
and um, and then uh, ran against Henry Bellman, and that was a very close race, but uh, Governor Bellman won that race. And then when he stepped, <clears throat> not stepped down, when he ended his single term, then I ran again in a very competitive race. The Speaker of the House was running and a whole bunch of other characters, U.S. Congressman Wes Watkins. And so very competitive primary, but I won the primary and then set a record of some type. We carried 75 of the 77 counties. We beat wow. poor, poor old Bill Price, who was former U.S. attorney and uh, served a term as governor and then decided not to run for re-election and went into business. And that business you're in now is, uh, I believe, well, in addition to owning uh, the occasional uh, building that houses people uh, or companies, I suppose, uh, you are run Walters Power International. Is that right? That's right. And um, I, I spent a year when I stepped out of office, uh, Don Smith had built the first independent uh, power plant, which was a thing back then. They called them IPPs, uh, serving uh, the, the grid here in Oklahoma City. And so I spent a year with Don and then had an opportunity to form my own company and, and did so. But uh, Don was doing a lot of international work. I wound up in Pakistan and all over the world, South, South America. I was in Haiti all the time. It was just an amazing year, tiresome, but uh, never here, traveling all the time. And uh, set my own company up then and have been doing roughly the same thing for the last 25 years. Wow. Well, the reason we wanted to have you on maybe now was we were sort of kicking around uh, our, our last topic. We we discussed the winter storm of historic proportions and uh, a bunch of different uh, tangential things. By the way, uh, if you like that episode somehow, rate, review us, subscribe to us. <laughs> Five stars um, only. Yeah. And, we, uh, I had some I got some good listener feedback. It was good. I just I don't know why I did it on my phone as opposed to on my laptop, which I normally do Zoom. But I, I was more worried about being in the closet with the clothes to try to muffle the sound. I, it was. Hmm. It was we live, we learn. I know. So, but we wanted to talk this time about what's coming forward after. What's the aftermath? And so, our big question this week is sort of: What do people need to know about the utility prices and just the overall utility landscape uh, in the wake of this historic February storm? And Governor, we thought that uh, considering your your current uh, uh, industry of choice. Uh, that you, which everybody's going to medical marijuana. So maybe, you know, in five years you'll be switched over, but, um, in your current <laughs> industry of choice, um, what, what does the average Oklahoman maybe not know about the, the utility landscape here, uh, that they need to. And then I know you also want to talk about Texas and the experience they had there and why their experience was different than ours. So you have the floor. Well, good. A filibuster, a filibuster <laughs> it'll be. First of all, uh, full disclosure, I'm I'm looking at an investment in a grow facility here in Oklahoma, so I may be in the medical marijuana business. Before <laughs> there you go. Long, you can bring you samples. Do. There we go. Yeah, <laughs> samples. Big cash flow. It's amazing how much money those chaps make. But um, I think the uh, first takeaway is that if you're from Texas or if you have family in Texas and you have an opportunity, it's a deregulated system. It's like the Wild West, of course. It's Texas. And uh, freedom-loving deregulation, you know, uh, do whatever you can. So, but you do have 70 options to buy power. So there's about 70 different vendors, authorized vendors. And the, and if somebody comes to you and says, hey, the Texas power rates are cheap, you want to float with the market, or do you want a fixed rate? Well, practice saying fixed rate, because what happens, what happened during the storm was the rates went up um, <clears throat> overall by $3 billion a day. 
And so people were paying 100 times their normal rate for power if they were floating with the market. But the people that they put on TV and said, oh, my God, I just got a bill for $15,000 for my little two-bedroom house, those people uh, apparently didn't didn't get the program and they'd signed up for a floating rate uh, uh, effort. And so there's a lot of competition there. It's kind of a fascinating price incentive system, frankly. The folks that are catching the heat right now is something called the Energy Reliability Council of Texas, ERCOT, they call it. And um, I had I'd built 11 plants in England in a very similar system. And, um, and so when I've sold my interest in, in that a company which stood by, kind of stood by as an emergency power service in England. England seems to pioneer a lot more things faster than we do. I found Texas, which was very similar, about the same size. They've got themselves isolated. They might as well be on the British Isles. You know, they're, they've cut themselves off from the rest of the uh, nation. They're not connected to the Southwest Power Pool like no. Oklahoma and, and So Kansas. when they run out of power, the lights go out or right. the heat goes off or the water plants quit operating or what have you. And that's exactly what happened. It's never never quite happened at this level. And so a lot of reasons for that. But the chaps there, I think uh, in 2011, they had a terrible freeze down there. You had a very similar occurrence. Uh, the power went down, the gas compressors froze, the big gas uh, power units went down. And, um, uh, and so they had this terrible high power for just a short period of time. Um, and, and they had a big cabal over that. They wrote up great regulations to say, okay, you got to insulate every valve, every pipe, every this, every that. And again, the freedom-loving um, legislature in um, Texas decided they didn't want to mandate any of that, kind of like mask. And so they said, hey, if you if you want to insulate, uh, have at it. If you don't, well, then don't. And so they didn't and because it cost a lot of money. And so we, they did it again, but this time they did it in spades. Now, the difference between that and where we are, we're in a highly regulated system here in, with OG&E and PSO and the big utilities. Um, there's not an opportunity for small power players like us to uh, really do much in this market. Uh, it's all the big guys. It's in the Southwest Power Pool. Um, and you pay uh, right now, <clears throat> right now, the power rate in Texas is about one and a half cents. You're paying seven or eight or maybe nine or ten cents, depending on what kind of deal you've got. But but that fixed rate is very high. And so for that, you get reliable service. Uh, absolutely 100% reliable service. The power never goes off, right? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the power goes off quite frequently. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if we're joking. I think, uh, I think we've just had a blip in the room here. I think I saw the lights flicker. And of course, uh, we had rolling blackouts, just like they did in Texas, not for as prolonged a period of time. And people say, well, but, but my bill's not going to be big. Well, just wait till you get your bill. There's you know, they're kind of sneaking up on you here, but there's about a billion dollars of extra fuel charges they're getting ready to pass through to ratepayers, and so that's all going to be fun. And uh, so you sound rather cynical about the way this is about monopoly systems. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they run the monopoly systems really run their utilities kind of like the Bada Bing Club and and uh, was run by Tony Soprano. <laughs> but uh, so there's uh, there a lot of that's gone away because we've got a more open market because we're part of uh, SPP. But and this is inordinately complicated. But it it is a monopoly. You're supposed to have much higher reliability. The margins above demand is like 25 percent. Texas is like eight percent. So they play a much riskier game down there. 
But the, at the end, you don't have particularly reliable power. It goes out a lot because of really bad distribution and, and uh, systems that the utilities are allowed to uh, continue to operate through. And then, frankly, they, they have the same problems as Texas. Things freeze up and things go down where they're stuck and you've got rolling blackouts. So not a lot to be gained by the fact that you have to pay a very high price on power. So is there like some in-between between monopoly system versus the Texas kind of free-for-all free market stuff? Like what would that look like? Yeah, there is, uh, you know, there are uh, there are hybrid systems around. And, and part of the, you know, it's part of the beauty and the complexity of our nation is that there's basically 50 different power systems. So, you know, you've got all these, you've got all these separate utilities and state regulatory agencies uh, what's happened is that uh, more and more these uh, regional transmission authorities, I call them RTOs or RTAs, is what a Southwest Power Pool is, what ERCOT is. Uh, those those exercise a little bit more uniformity. So we're in a system that is with 14 other states. And so the ability to build plants and to extend transmission lines and all that's a little more uh, common. But but you do have uh, uh, different systems. The the system in California, it probably is a little bit more of a hybrid. It's not the Wild West like Texas. There is quite a bit more regulation. But you can choose options there that allow you to take advantage of low rates if you're willing to run a risk. Or in my case, I sit on a, power, I sit on a foundry in North Texas, and we keep those guys operating even when the rates are crazy. So uh, I charged them $200,000 for power over a nine-day period for what we generated for them. But had I not been there, it would have cost them $2 million. Hmm. So you can, you can, you just adapt and, and get creative. And, um, and, and so there are hybrids. Interesting. Yeah. Can I ask another question? Please do. <laughs> no, we, all, we hired you to be I a journalist. But you, only, you get one question a day. <laughs> so... You're talking about these bills that are coming, and OG&E is talking about they're going to spread it over 10 years, right? So you're never going to get the you know $1,000 bill or whatever. It's going to be slowly for years, which also doesn't sound fantastic. Um, so my question, though, is that early on there was some talk about how during a disaster, you're not allowed to charge more than like 10% more than your regular price. It's a price gouging regulation. So that seems to have not... Like this doesn't apply in this case. Is that because of where like the gas is coming from, or like what? Well, they what's have going on there? they have all these pass through things. So they've gotten the legislature over time. Uh, <clears throat> the utilities have had incredible stroke with the legislature, which is uh, something I've never really understood. Because if you go to them and ask for a political contribution or what have you, you get ten dollars or a hundred dollars, or maybe they'll give you a check from the PAC. So, hey, we're doing better than that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They uh, so. So I, I never quite understood the stroke that they had, uh, even back in the day when I was in politics. Uh, they've now kind of, they've now by and large been replaced in that category, and just in terms of having raw stroke by by uh, our uh, sovereign nations, our Native American uh, Indian tribes, and have I think now exercised more political influence and in utilities, and yet they still get everything they want. And so one of the things they wanted is, oh by the way, we've got this fixed tariff, but. Here's category A that we're going to pass through. Here's a fuel increase. Here's this we're going to pass through. So there's so many pass-throughs in the process that they're going to they're going to make their money one way or the other. And so they're they're not going to they're not going to lose money. That's kind of the point of the monopoly system. But for that extra margin, they're setting here at 20 or 25 percent theoretically. 
for that margin that that of safety that we are buying, we're paying an enormous amount for that. And they're guaranteed a return on that. So they're motivated to build plants because every time they build a plant, they get paid for. They get 15% on their uh, funds and that they invest. And in Texas, you're out there just swinging. I mean, you, you build a plant, it's all, it's all on you. And so that's the difference between the two systems. Now, in Oklahoma, we have an even more bizarre or more complicated um, power utility structure, right? We have what's called the Oklahoma Municipal Power Authority, uh, which oversees some of the smaller uh, um, entities. We have a lot of um, co-ops. And then we even have um, what we're going to talk about in just a minute, uh, like the unregulated uh you know, purchasing of gas and things like that for some of these smaller systems. So could you talk a little bit about, and oh, and then I'm, I'm sorry, the big one, the big uh, really nice albatross of the room would be governor in our power system in the state. GRDA. Your favorite uh, yeah, oh, entity. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh, which is the Grand River Dam Authority, which is the state-owned power company. And so Talk to us a little bit, just a lot of people here in the metro area, they're going to say, oh, G&E or you know, Tulsa area, they're going to say PSO. But a lot of people in smaller communities have a totally different uh, experience buying buying power. What can you tell? What's the situation out in Canute? Well, uh, they would be on the, uh, I think they're on Western Farmers, if I remember. But the, so you do have these uh, uh, municipal authorities and you have these um, uh, uh, power associations, Oklahoma Municipal Power Authority, you've got GRDA, you've got uh, CAMO in eastern Oklahoma. So you've got a lot of that spread around. So we get we get uh, comfortable with thinking that it's only a uh, uh, public service company of Oklahoma and Tulsa and uh, og and here, but it's, uh, it's much more complicated than that. Most of them buy their power. Very few of them generate. Oklahoma Municipal Power Authority does generate. Western Farmers generates and GRDA generates, uh, but not everybody generates. A lot of times they just cut good power deals and then they distribute within the city. And, it, and in Elk City, for example, out in western Oklahoma, it's a source of revenue for them and it's a source of revenue for several other municipalities, Stillwater and elsewhere. So uh, nice, and, nice and complicated, but, it, you know, by and large, the system is run by the major utilities that... Um, that own own the um, distribution and transmission systems, and so part of what creates one layer of unreliability here is that um, there the uh, and this is a this is a novel thought, but and a lot of people disagree with this. I think I actually had OG&E stand and walk out of the room one time when I said this. But oh, great! That's gonna that's gonna be perfect. They're gonna love us. Go ahead. It is a um, uh, oddly they. They, they get paid a higher percent on their disaster recovery work. So the reason, part of the reason that you see utilities cross, crisscrossing the country to help out in disasters, et cetera, is that it becomes a profit line for them. And it's a bit of a disincentive in the system. So there's not an incentive to bury lines and have super reliability. When, when there's an outage and they've got to go put in poles and restring wires and all of that, they frankly make more money on that than you would otherwise. So I'm, my fear is it's become a big disincentive for the utilities. They don't really want to bury the lines. So, you know, developers and others will force that to happen because of just aesthetics. But, but you know, the reason you drive down May Avenue and there's poles leaning every which way and wires are sagging and, you know, this thing's just waiting for a storm, 
to go out is, uh, in, in my view, because it's become a profit center in terms of disaster recovery. Now, you'll get every utility will disagree with that. But we'll, we'll, let them, we'll have them on to, to pepper right. us with their, uh, they can, deny, their, their rebuttal. Uh, yeah, rebuttal. There you go. <laughs> Yay. Wait, can you explain a little bit? Because I guess in my mind, I thought of those disaster recovery things that they would be really expensive for the company, but no. They're passed through. So again, okay. this, is, this is something that's passed through and the, and the return on that expenditure is higher than they would get uh, if they went out and built a power plant or, or invested in a, in, in a capital structure. And I'm I'm uh, bastardizing that explanation pretty pretty uh, rough, but but it's uh, I do think it's a profit center forum. There's there's a reason for them to kind of make up the numbers when you ask them. Okay, let, we we need to we need to uh, vary our distribution system in Oklahoma City because I'm tired of the power going out every time a cloud comes over, and um, and their response they they come up with these astronomical numbers that first of all are crazy in terms of the per mile cost. And secondly, they always throw in every every wire in the state. <laughs> so they will, they'll announce this multi-gazillion dollar project um, and everybody goes, oh my God, we'll never afford that. Well, that's not the point. The point is to take a midtown area like we're setting in or these areas that have really old infrastructure and replace it and bury it. And ultimately it saves everybody money, including the ratepayers, because we wind up paying for those disaster recovery efforts. There really are some just terrifying power poles that you drive around the, the oh, neighborhood yeah. that I live in and you're like, that thing seems like... Should a, that be doing that? Right. Yeah, is that like, safe? Yeah. yeah. Um, Suicidal squirrels can take out an entire section of the city. You know, they, they there's so there, many of them. They love to chew on those little fuses on those transformer boxes. It's but. hard to be a squirrel. So uh, so we talked about a couple things and, and I, you know, we may get to the legislature here in a minute and, and I, I really am fascinated by GRDA. Actually, the first thing you ever wrote, I think, that we published on Nondoc was uh, you were you were pitching um, the idea of selling the state power uh, company for you. Is like Governor Walters finds a billion dollars, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I then, love that deal. You know, uh, I got I got all these Republicans calling me, and they were like, "How did you get David Walters to be a Republican?" And I was <laughs> like, "I don't know." Uh, but I was just reading on the Purcell Register, PurcellRegister.com, uh, about uh, their city manager uh, sits on the finance, actually chairs the finance committee for the Oklahoma Municipal Power Authority. And I just want to read a couple little notes. Um, they were talking about how they're looking at, at at absorbing a roughly a 133 to 333 fold increase in natural gas prices during the storm. Uh, during the storm, uh, I'm sorry, normally the Municipal Power Authority purchases natural gas to fuel electricity generation at a cost of $3 per million BTU. During the storm, however, that price soared as high as $1,000 per million BTU. The authority was able to purchase some natural gas for $400 per million BTU. As a result, OMPA is out some $60 million in inf increased fuel costs. Now, this I thought was interesting. And this is according to the Purcell Register. It's actually just a. There's no byline. It's just the the, the newspaper wrote this. But um, the uh, it says instead of placing that burden on consumers, the plan is to refinance the authority's existing loans and extend the time uh, to pay those off. I hadn't really heard that before. I, I saw that before we were uh, recording here, and I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, look at things. I'm interested in what GRDA is going to say at their March 10th uh, board meeting because I don't know whether they incurred any higher costs uh, yet, but they obviously provide a lot of this power that goes out to these smaller communities. And as you touched on, Governor, one thing I think is really interesting is that, you know, in Oklahoma, 
we have the limitation where uh, property taxes or ad valorem taxes can only be levied by counties. And then apparently uh, in the 70s, there was an agreement that it was going to be the same thing. Only cities and towns could do sales tax, but then that bill didn't make it out of the Senate or something. And so sales tax can be done by counties and cities. But if you look at it, municipalities really only have sales tax and then utility sales that they can use to generate uh, revenue. And so you have the power systems of these small communities really being a, an integral part of their municipal finance for the way they fund their, their entire city. Yeah, I think in most cases, they're going to be insulated from the from the issues of, uh, un, unless you've got a big, a big one, Stillwater, for example, does some of its own generation. And so, uh, you know, they might be exposed to the high fuel costs. But um, you know, it's it is um, uh, the the fuel situation is intriguing and complicated, and and the reason uh, the reason that it went down, the reason it shot to a thousand, I hadn't heard that number. I'd heard six hundred here. We saw four hundred dollars um, an MMBTU in Texas, I, and I've got a, a portion of what we do is natural gas. And so we just had to shut it down because I'm getting paid nine dollars a kilowatt hour, but to run power for uh, for at four hundred dollars in MMBTU cost me uh, forty dollars a kilowatt hour. So even at these exorbitantly high rates, again one hundred times the increase, uh, you couldn't make money at at any of those. So somebody's gonna somebody's gonna eat that, and guess who? And so whether it's refinanced in that refinancing process, all of that, all of that additional debt and interest and cost will get passed through. And so it's not. Um, uh, so the question is, why are you paying eight or nine or 10 cents here in terms of, uh, of uh, utilities? If you if you have wind power, for example, if you want to buy wind generation, uh, they literally the Corporation Commission authorized them to charge if you're if you if you want to check that box and say I want to buy wind, they charge you another penny and a half above what what you were going to pay, and so they actually pay you more, uh, cost you more, and it makes you feel good, I guess, from a green standpoint, but from a renewable energy standpoint, this this is a mess here in Texas. It's extraordinary. They've got solar and wind and huge amounts of this, and so everybody wanted to blame this on wind. Wind did pretty well, frankly, except for the developers that, you know, didn't put heaters in their blades. Again, weren't required to by the freedom-loving regulators down there. But <clears throat> but new wind projects, I'll guarantee you, will have heated blades like they've got in every other cold climate around Canada and elsewhere. They should put those in razor blades. Yeah, I would, that would be good. Just heated, that blades. Would be good. Just heated blades. Heated blades always, blade. forever. Who, um, who would have who thought? So... Um, uh, so yeah, it's a it, it is uh, it's a monopoly. Um, it is uh, it's supposed to be a fixed tariff. It's supposed to be highly reliable because of that. It's providing service, but it's much more complicated than that, and it's got all kinds of problems. Well, it's complicated, and the legislature being in uh, again, this is March fourth, so they're a month into things. Um, you know, this big disaster happens. People are outraged. And so uh, what do you do when you're in government, governor? You call a press conference and you stand up there and say, by gosh, we're going to fix it. And that's what uh, the state leaders did. Um, was that a week ago now? I don't know. What is time? It's called government by gesture. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so I actually had the chance before we uh, started this podcast, I asked Senate President Pro Tempore uh, Greg Treat, um, a Republican from Senate District 47 in Northwest Oklahoma City, uh, what the latest was in terms of the legislative 
committees that were looking into this issue, what might be done to uh, prevent it from happening again. And he had a kind of an answer. So we're going to listen to that right now. So we're in a much better spot uh, than our neighbors to the south, but we've still got some serious concerns about utility prices for ratepayers and, and Oklahoma citizens. We've continually met um, uh, as senators, and I've been meeting with industry folks and with advocates. Uh, we take that very seriously. We haven't come to a final uh, uh, conclusion on exactly how to approach it, but I think you will see uh, more than likely legislation coming out of this session trying to address some of that. Uh, conversations are ongoing, and uh, the biggest concern is with the communities that have unregulated gas providers and how how are those going to come out? You know, the Texas bills where you saw anywhere from 4,000 to 14,000 in some instances, and I'm not sure what's accurate that I'm seeing online what versus uh, what's inaccurate and made up, but they are really high. We Most Oklahomans should not expect that. There are some Oklahoma communities that are served directly by unregulated gas uh, companies that caused me some concern. We're looking into that. And then the bulk of people who are served by the regulated utilities uh, will likely see an increase because of increased utilization. There will be a pass on of the fuel cost. And we're trying to make sure we protect the ratepayer. Um, uh, and we're, we're trying to come up with a solution uh, and having meetings continually about it. That's what that legislation would, would be about is the, un, the currently unregulated markets. Uh, there, there are many uh, actors involved in, in trying to figure out stakeholders, so I can't absolutely guarantee that's what it would be narrowly focused, but that would be one of the focuses that I would hope that we could look at. Thank you. Yeah, so Senator Treat was, was kind of making reference to situations where some of these smaller power authorities ended up being in a situation where they had to buy, uh, you know, essentially emergency purchases of gas. And with the cost being so high, they were, you know, kind of turning to companies that are not technically regulated providers in Oklahoma. One example that I was able to get specifics about was the Grove Municipal Service Authority, uh, which wound up, uh, as reported to me by Representative Josh West up there, they purchased gas from Constellation Energy, a Baltimore-based subsidiary of the nuclear energy company Exelon, uh, another northeastern Oklahoma town, Chelsea, with a population of about 2,000 people in Rogers County. It's also reporting uh, that they're going to uh, have steep bills. So so what end of the industry, uh, what does that speak to you, Governor? What, what do you say about that comment from the pro tem? Well, when somebody had asked me a question that I had no idea what the answer was, I'd say things like, I'm going to take it seriously. Conversations are ongoing. There are a lot of actors and stakeholders. We're definitely going to do something legislatively. And that's basically what Senator Treat said. So um, this it's a complicated business, and I'm sure he doesn't have a clue as how they're going to respond to this. And so my hope is, is that there's some enough experts in the Corporation Commission that can uh, look at the system, look at the gas contracts. Most of this has to do with gas difficulties. Now, there were a lot of contractual issues. We learned some contractual issues on gas. 
in uh, in Texas, which we will correct. Uh, but this it, this doesn't really get fixed at the legislative level. There's no amount of regulation that they can dive into the gas industry to to fix. It's going to get solved by people not wanting to to experience this again and 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 learn from the difficulties they had. So uh, I'm sure they'll pass something, and it'll sound, you know, like they're taking it seriously and they're and addressing the stakeholders and all the other buzzwords. But, you know, this is a legislature that basically outlawed you putting um, rooftop solar. Uh, we're the only state in the country. These conservative groups send out these bills all the time, and we're just a we're just a great laboratory for that. So we jumped on the bill that put a tax on t rooftop solar that basically made you pay for the power that you weren't using. <laughs> and, the, and we're the only state in the country that passed that. And they, fortunately, the Corporation Commission, I don't think has ever really enforced it. But that's the level of expertise we've got in the legislature when it comes to complicated uh, commercial power transactions. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, I think part of the issue is that um, you know, the the Corporation Commission, to my understanding, without revealing, you know, maybe uh, how I came to that understanding, is that they don't have any record or idea of who these companies are selling, uh, uh, you know, gas to or fuel to some of these power authorities. You know, it was a it was a great I mean, as it as it almost was for you in certain instances of a field day for. Uh, profitability from this company based in Baltimore, you know, that uh, the Corporation Commission has never heard of yeah. and doesn't have any dealings with, doesn't have any records on, and and they don't really uh, oversee those small uh, uh, authorities around the state. So it's a complicated issue. And, and a lot of what happened, and not to get too in the weeds, because I know time's precious here, but there's, uh, we draw a lot of associated gas. There's a big difference between associated gas and, and regular deep gas, which is high pressure, cleaned up stuff without a lot of water in it. Texas had this problem. So the, when this associated gas goes through these gas compressors uh, in, and it's minus 17 degrees, something's going to freeze because it's got too much water in it. And so, so that's the level of complexity we're dealing with is water content and different types of gases. Again, the legislature is not going to be able to address that. And this becomes a, it becomes a penalty period when these people finally have the, uh, the inability to pass this on to ratepayers, which is what they're going to do. When they have to pay for this, they're going to fix the problem. But as long as they can pass it on to the ratepayers in Oklahoma, which I'll guarantee you at the end of the day will be the solution. It may be spread out of ways. It may be refinanced. It may be something else. But we're going to pay for it eventually. When they have to pay for it, when they have to declare bankruptcy like they're doing in Texas, when companies one after another, the largest largest cooperative down there just went bankrupt, you know, multi-billion dollar uh, occurrences, then they'll fix the problem. Okay. Uh, fascinating. Andrea? You had a historical nugget. <laughs> All right. So dun, 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 dun. We, we do this every episode. I knew we were going to be talking about utilities and what happened recently. And I knew that had to do with natural gas. And I was like, I should find a gas related historical nugget. So I'm Googling and Googling what, what I Googled natural gas fun facts. <laughs> <laughs> and there were not any. <laughs> I, was, I, I got really excited. Like, oh my gosh, there are some. I, I just thought you were going to find a way to use the phrase deep gas. Oh, <laughs> or like fart that's, jokes or something. Yeah, that's like, what we're you're, going, we're you're going always there. burping during the episodes. Listen. Like, you, you have deep gas. That's, I think I had the most audible burp this episode. Do we feel bad about that or special? I have never noticed this, and you're just, you okay. just draw attention to it. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm stopping. <laughs> I've never noticed. It's not my time. Okay. O okay, great. <laughs> Thank God I'm hard of hearing. <laughs> <laughs> and we are very appropriately spaced out. 
So anyway, I ended up looking up sort of energy related historical nuggets. And I came across this one that as I was working on it, I realized all you native Oklahomans might know about it already, but I didn't. I thought it was really interesting. And this is the biggest oil gusher ever in Oklahoma history. Hmm. The Wild Mary Sudic Well. Oh, Wild Mary. Where was Wild Mary? (laughs) Wild Mary was in Oklahoma City. It's right near what's now where 240 and Bryant Ave cross. So this was a well that was being dug on um, property belonging to two Czech immigrants named Vincent and Mary Sudik. And I'm not going to pretend to know 1930s like oil well digging technology, but they did something wrong. They miscalculated something. Seems easy to do. Seems possible. Yeah. Yeah. And this well blew up and it was just enormous and it started just spewing 200 million cubic feet of gas and 20,000 barrels of oil every day for 11 days. <gasps> and it's just like flying through the air. There was oil like falling in Norman, you know, because the wind is oh, carrying no. it. So I, I didn't write down the like total number, but some just enormous amount of oil for over a week. It's just flying into the and air. And getting on like animals and stuff. That's why they yeah, called exactly. it the Wild Mary Sudic Well, because she went wild trying to get it plugged from it. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably. Um, so this is also like in the Depression, right? So you're like just pretty uh, poor and miserable. And now you're also just covered in oil. Just oil Awful. going everywhere. Um, anyway, so they then got it under control. And then it became the most productive well in the world at the time oh. for a while. Um, and then that event led to a bunch of new technologies, new regulations to stop that from happening again. The Sudics became extremely famous. Um, Mary Sudik was getting like film offers, yes, and like she's people wanted her to be in, on vaudeville. Oh, whoa, um, that's but she a big was job. like, "I'm just filthy rich now. I'm just going to enjoy my money. Leave me alone." So that's what she did. She was not in any movies. She Wait, just she got rich in. even though this happened. It then became the most because productive, it became so productive oh, oil they well got in the it world. Capped. They mm-hmm. got it capped. Yeah. Once they figured oh. it out. So that's oh, like that's a really good recovery story, too. Yeah, I think the Sudics Don't get stuck well. in your failure because you could have yeah. the most productive oil well in the world just right. shortly thereafter. Yeah. And I think they had other um, wells on their properties. Um, so the Sudics did well. The 1930s, when you could turn an environmental disaster into a pile <laughs> of cash. The good old days. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that well was in operation until 1974, and that is my historical nugget. Okay. Boom. Well, uh, the well, we'll call the legislature and see if they can go retroactively fix that. Um, <laughs> you know, Governor, you said that uh, one of the big draws to come to this podcast was that you could shit talk uh, the people <laughs> at 23rd and Lincoln. <laughs> and uh, here's your chance. Uh, so I just came from there this week. Uh, it's as terrible as you remember. Um, and yeah, there's a bunch of legislation passing, uh, left and right. Uh, very little has made it through both, uh, chambers of the legislature so far. So, uh, what do you want to know that I might know about, or what do you want to talk about that you think is stupid that they're doing? Well, uh, you know, when you file, when you pre-file 3000 pieces of legislation, you're going to have so much stupid things, so many stupid things. You can't uh, address them all, but I'm, I think generally what concerns me, and I would be interested in your views as to what is actually going to pass, the attacks on public education, the continued efforts not to improve public education, trying to move money to uh, uh, either for-profit or or even public charters, 
uh, and, and to let our public education drift like it is, the incredible lack of investment in higher education, it's just unbelievable uh, how they've starved out higher education. And yet that's, that's what's going to attract people to our state. Every time we get a major company, they can't find enough talent here. And that's because we don't have a higher education system that's been properly funded. And so on it goes. And the, and the attack on uh, women's rights and you know, the right to choose and control their own health care and all of that is just it's embarrassing, frankly. And well, so someday maybe we'll get past this ideology that is so negative, divisive and unproductive and worry about how do we improve our quality of life. Well, I think uh, without digging into the deep elements of, of the higher education system, although uh, a quick plug for my story about what's going on at, at OU, uh, we'll put it a link in the comments or you can just go to nondoc.com. Um, but uh, one thing that the universities are, I think, beginning to try to fight is uh, a bill that was brought to my attention actually just earlier today, House Bill 1888, and it actually got kind of pulled off. They, they um, laid it over yesterday on the House floor. It's by a guy named Danny Williams, uh, Representative Danny Williams, who was in the legislature as a Democrat uh, back uh, when you were governor, I believe, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Now he's back as a Republican, and he spends all his time reminding everybody that he was here 30 years ago. Uh, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's just hilarious. But uh, he has 1888, and this bill opens up and says... It's new law, which is also da always dangerous. Uh, no public body shall conduct any form of gender or sexual diversity training or counseling. Uh, it defines that any public body that violates the provisions of this section shall be denied any source of public funding. So with all this stuff going on, uh, the real goal here is to prevent uh, a university from having diversity training for its students or for its faculty or anything like that. Any form of any diversity training? Yeah, what correct. Exactly what does that even mean? The point. I, you're only. I don't know. We're not allowed <laughs> okay. to talk about it. Um, it. So you know, that's that's one that was put to my radar. Now, um, you know, the education stuff is interesting, and I'll direct people back to the podcast we just just kind of did about that, and and we talked a little bit about sort of um, the open transfer question. And, you know, Angela, you have a, a child and, and I think there's different perspectives on the open transfer question and things of, of that nature. One bill that I saw pass the House today, passed 85 to 11, uh, it's a, a co-authored by a uh, rural Republican, Josh West, I mentioned him earlier from Grove and Colin Walkie, a Democrat from here in Oklahoma City. Uh, they have House Bill 1602, I believe it is, which deals with data privacy in the state of Oklahoma. And um, it's actually probably the most, West would probably be mad if I said it was the most progressive, but it's the most, uh, it's the strongest data privacy um, legislation in the country right now, supposedly. That's what their talking point is, uh, because it is an opt-in uh, data privacy measure. So let me give you an example of what this involves. Basically, I don't know if you know that your cell phones are listening to you. Um, like if you say, wait, like, what? Like, yeah, I bet if you pull up your Facebook within three hours from now, David Walters is a suggested friend because it knows you're sitting mm -hmm. here with him. It's heard his name and you're going to be suggested to be his friend, right? Well, will you be more... my Facebook friend, Governor? <laughs> sure. Uh, sure. Or we can just be friends in real yeah, life. Yeah. Yeah. IRL. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So thank you. Uh, one of the interesting things, even more nefarious than than all of that, is when you go to websites or you download apps or things. These collect data about you: your IP address, your email address, your phone number, interests, things you purchase, uh, all, all all the things, right? 
And uh, while sometimes that data is just used by a company to do its own internal business practices, other times that data is used, is sold by that company uh, for money. And, um, you know, it might be $2, according to Representative Walkie, for something like your name, your son's name, your email address, those sorts of things. But it might be $200 for deeper detailed information, um, which might even include things about uh, Representative Walkie, you know, wants people to know. It's sort of jarring. They collect data on if you are a rape survivor. Because then they can market, they know they can market certain things to people based on, you know, life experiences that they know. And that could be $200 or more uh, as a data point. So that bill passed 85 to 11 off the House floor, very bipartisan. Uh, and the question is whether it's gonna get heard in the Senate right now. So you 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 talked about all the things, uh, we talked about a bad, uh, a bill that seems pointless, but this bill, whether it makes it the final way or not, whether it's changed, uh, I think it's, I, I thought it might give you a glimmer of hope uh, <laughs> Governor, that, that that something's trying to be done. The, the, the thing that makes this bill um, un- not unique, I hate that, we're not supposed to use that word in journalism, but uh, that makes it interesting is it's an opt-in bill. That means that, um, let's say nondoc.com was more sophisticated than it is, and you came to our website and uh, you signed up for our email at- address, and we would maybe track your IP address. In a world where we had there. any idea how to do <laughs> right. it. Right, we don't know how to do this. But, uh, In a world where we could operate our website. <laughs> if we were just using that to market to you our own product, that we would not have to have any disclaimer or anything like that. But if we were going to sell that to somebody else, in under this bill, we would have to get you to opt in to allow us to even collect that data. A lot of states have law, or a lot of states are pushing laws that are opt out. It gives you the chance to say, don't collect that. I believe that's what the European system uh, is, Uh, but this would be an opt-in measure, and that's the way it is now. Does it end up an opt-in measure? I don't really know, but that's why we have two chambers of the legislature, and uh, we'll see And our government will work for us. Yeah, exactly. And can I say something about crazy legislation like Danny Williams' lack of diversity, and I know know Danny, I'm surprised he's back, but but (laughs) appropriately as a Republican. So um, why why do no Republicans vote for the uh, COVID relief bill? Uh, why why are they opposed to uh, so many good things that are popular among the public? Or why do they advance these things that would be terribly unpopular? The idea of eliminating diversity training within colleges and universities would be crazy. But they can do that because they figured out how to rule in, in here. They've got a great majority, but nationally, they figured out how to run government with a minority. And voter suppression is real. Um, the the purging of Oklahoma voters, we don't read much about this. This should be a topic for you all. If you break out the racial, um, in the big, there was a huge purge in 2019, early in the Stitt administration. 50% of the people purged, tens of thousands of people taken off the rolls were Native American. Now, they're 8% of our population, 9%. So the idea that they're 50% of the purge is ridiculous. And um, and so somebody needs to explore that and understand what that's about. But the suppression of voters, the you know, they authorize uh, uh, registration by online, still not implemented. Uh, you can change your registration, but you can't register online. When that happens, we're going to be able to register a lot more folks who otherwise wouldn't be registered. And they know that, and they're avoiding that. And so they 
can't, they only have to appeal to a very small base with crazy things like no diversity training and, and, and other matters. Or we're all going to or we're going to vote. We're the only state in the country that had 100 percent of our delegation that voted against the recognition of a of a Democratic election. Yeah, the House, dele House delegation. The House delegation. Well, we're so, going to write. We're going to write that voter purge thing on our whiteboard over yeah, here. Don't yeah, don't give our ideas of, away. Yeah, let's podcast. Do. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I I think uh, we should mention that you are. What is your current position within the DNC? You're or, or you're on the Democratic National Committee. Is that right? I'm I'm on the Democratic National Committee. They call him National Committee Man. That uh, should be not so gender specific. But um, I'm I'm the National Committee Man from Oklahoma, and, and that's one thing. But when I went, uh, I I promised uh, the the last National uh, Committee Man Jim Fraser in Tulsa that I'd take his place. He would not. He wasn't going to retire unless I'd do it. So I told him I would. When I went there, well, then they were, they were holding an election among the 14 central states and for a position on the executive committee. So I'm, I'm on the executive committee of the Democratic National Committee, which is a group of 40 or 45 people. So uh, I get to talk to, you know, Perez and Jamie Harrison and folks like that periodically. And, and, uh, and, and we're arguing for more money for the Democratic Party here, and we'll probably get that. But anyway, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. It's a bit time-consuming. I should move on. Uh, you know, party politics is not my forte. We have an independent expenditure group that we organized several years ago called the Oklahoma Center for Progress, and that's a lot more fun and, and a lot less bureaucratic. So uh, we, I'll stay involved in public policy probably as long as I'm breathing and, and hopefully uh, make some progress here in Oklahoma. Well, the great thing about non-doc, I'd like to think, is that we try to have people from all ends of the political spectrum, the social spectrum, uh, all those sorts of things. And we try to bring you different voices at different times. And we also are supported by a lot of different people at different times. So I think that means it's time for our favorite segment. Donor relations. No, I just said it wrong. Having relations. Okay, I, I like you know donor what, you guys? <laughs> I don't know. You're gonna have to figure it out. That's two, that's two pods in a row. Just fix it. Is it two pods in a row? Just fix it in post. Uh, okay, I did find. So we we did have some feedback from our last episode. Um, Tracer, one more question was about kind of what's your end of the world meal. So I had we had a listener write in that said his sky is falling. The sky is falling. Meal is craft macaroni and cheese, not the blue box, the fancier kind that comes with the sauce. Way to be specific. With blackened chicken, steamed broccoli, sautéed mushrooms, and peas all added to it. Ratchet? Maybe? Delicious? I think so. Um, <laughs> he did say, I haven't tried it. It kind of sounds amazing to me, but like anything with blackened chicken, like... Sounds good. I yeah. think works out. Um, he said, uh, don't forget to add the mushrooms. It is a deal breaker. So then uh, I did want to say, just kind of in defense of our last episode, I know we were all kind of feeling, you know, not amazing about it. But um, another listener said, you guys do a good job of providing information I don't see or hear other places. The last episode was enjoyable uh, to listen to and made it more real, air quotes, uh, since it was a virtual taping. So I thought that was nice. 
I want to take this time to say thank you to some donors and to some sponsors. But first, let's hit those donors, Andy and Carol Magid, Gettner and Wendy Drummond, the lovely Marsha Smith, Stephen Walden, David, who sometimes goes by Heather Blatt, Nicole Poindexter, Brian Hughes, Kirtan Natyal, Josh Belton, and Don Watson. And then last but not least, we've got some sponsors I want to mention. The Association of Oklahoma General Contractors. Their new thing is kind of fast money and how when they pass legislation, the money goes out into the world and starts working quickly. That's one of our sponsors. We say thank you to them and the Oklahoma Public School Resource Center. They're helping sponsor our internship program, which is amazing. Uh, we also got some support from the InAsMuch Foundation for that. We're going to have some more details when we hire those amazing interns. But if you have a college-aged uh, son, daughter, friend, uh, neighbor who is interested in the journalism or communications or marketing world. We have two summer internships. One of them is going to be a reporting internship mm-hmm. uh, where we're going to have them kind of pick a beat and focus on that for a lot of the summer and do some other projects. And then we also are going to have a marketing intern. And that means you're mine. So yeah, I, <laughs> you right. get to come be mine for the summer. Doesn't that sound fun? So we will have a link to the internship application in the show notes. Uh, make sure to get on that. And yeah, that is everything. Awesome. Well, that's a wonderful uh, way to sum up our favorite segment, something relations. Um, (laughs) Are we done? Is that everything, Governor? Or do we... I have one more question. Well, listen, there's one more thing. uh... Okay, guys. So yes, I do have a kid. He is six years old. He says the craziest things as they do. He is really into this would you rather stuff. Um, Yesterday on our walk, he asked me, would I rather be bored or eat styrofoam? (laughs) He would rather (laughs) eat styrofoam. I would give anything to be bored. So that's just, that's what happens to you over the course of your life. Uh, I was just like, that is so easy. Bored. Can I be bored right now? Please. I love um, that question. When he came up with... Oh, should we just do that one then? No, no, no. Okay, I thought it was too easy. I thought we'd all just want to meditate. I just think it's really like a fascinating look into his mind. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's what's going on in his head. But he came up with one the other day that was like kind of meta. And I just said, I've been thinking about it ever since. But he said, would you rather be dumb or mean? Ooh. Mm. I know. That's a good one. Right. I think I'd. I think I'd rather, well, if the old question, I can't remember, I'm not good with the classics, but but there's the old question, would you rather be, to be loved or feared, right? Okay, and yeah, And the I've idea is you're before. supposed to be feared because then people won't take advantage of you. Oh, is that the idea? I think that's the idea. I've really missed uh, but, so I the think, mark. <laughs> I think I would go, I think I would go with mean because in your, hmm. in your situation, people can change, right? Like I could go through uh, like a Scrooge, moment i could be visited by ghosts and then you know no you don't gotta be like i want to be mean for five minutes and then nice again you have to you have to i want my redeeming moment (laughs) i just like what if you're just setting boundaries but that's perceived by others as mean like i feel like there's a whole perception layer to this question i think i'm very curious what the governor has to say Mm -hmm. i think i would say dumb partially just because it feels being dumb is probably like perfectly fine if you're dumb. Yeah. I would guess. And Happy also, and dumb. yeah, there's a <laughs> lot of like thing. wonderful dumb people in the world. There's Ignorance no wonderful mean people. Like, I, don't know. <laughs> I feel like dumb is correctable <laughs> and mean is a choice, but maybe that's just true for me. That mm. may not be true for other people. Okay, Governor, you're... settle this for us. Yeah, it, I, I just can't imagine going through life being mean all the time. It's it's kind of fun when you're younger, but uh, when you get older and you've got those grandkids and everybody else, it'd just be a terrible condition. So I I, I, I hate to be dumb. Some would say that maybe I am, but um, uh, I think I'd have to pick dumb and then hope I get an education option. 
You know, now I'm wondering why he asked me this question and why those were the two. Maybe he was hoping you could just like be only one of them. Yeah, I think I need to look within. Oh, gosh. What did you choose? I chose dumb in, in, at the time. We're all right. also nice. All right. <laughs> nice answer. Well, listen, come back next time and these three morons will be gone and I'll be here. So uh, thank you for listening, Governor. Thank you so much yeah. for being here. You're Wonderful as always. We have great chats. Um, and thanks for subscribing, rating, reviewing Five us. Thank you me. again to those donors. Uh, we'll see you next time. Keep reading. Keep paying attention to the news. and Being nice and dumb. Being nice and dumb. You have been listening to Live from the News Dungeon, a nondoc.com production, edited and recorded by Bryce Holland.